you, Mike, very much indeed. Well, I've been spending a little time, as you may have gathered, as really speaking about us as leaders. That's you and me as leaders. And, and I think, too, I want to encourage you. you know, I wouldn't bother wasting a minute working out whether you are a leader or not. Just do what God calls you to do. And um, leadership is just doing what Jesus tells you to do. And I think sometimes you just see something that needs doing, and you do it. Well, that's leadership, isn't it? Because you get so frustrated. I want to turn now to, from you as people, because we've been talking about that, um, to what, you know, what Jesus asks us to do. Because you are my friends if you do what I, um, what I tell you. Jesus says, really, I'll ask you, because that's the way he works. If you've got a Bible, you might like to turn very quickly to, I think, arguably, my favorite chapter in the New Old Testament, 30, Ezekiel 37. And um, I do this very quickly because we, we want to get on to ministry too. But I, I think it's the chapter that contains some of the most exciting promises in the Bible, actually. It's set, as you know, in, um, in the um, exile time. And the, the people of God were very dispirited, very discouraged, very disunited, very at odds with one another. And... Um, very like the church in some parts today, without a vision, without any sort of hope and all that stuff. And Ezekiel comes cracking in with, um, or God does rather, with this vision that he gives Ezekiel. And um, you, you, you know the story, I'm sure, but, so I'll paraphrase it rather than reading it. But Ezekiel makes a number of points. He says, the hand of the Lord is upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And you remember that as the, um, the picture develops, there were just bones all over the floor, and they were dry, and not only were they dry, but the book tells us that they were very dry. Well, how dry can you get? And um, just bones, and bones are bones in any generation, actually. And God asks Ezekiel this question. He says, son of man, can these bones live? Now, I'm sure God doesn't ask us trick questions, but I've always admired Ezekiel for his wisdom in replying to God. Because it's very tempting, isn't it, to say, well, God, of course they can live. <laughs> or equally, Lord, don't be silly. They're dry bones. I mean, look at them. Very dry bones. They can't possibly live. But Ezekiel doesn't say that. He says, Sovereign Lord, only you know the answer to that question. If you say they'll live, they'll live. If you say they won't live, they won't live. Now, I don't know where he set you, but I'll guarantee that you're tempted from time to time to think that you're the only person that's in ministry that is surrounded by dry bones. A number of um, you know, people I know feel that, exactly. They're just surrounded by dry bones. It's very hard here. They're very hard. You know, they can't imagine. You know. Which is why I love this chapter. Because Ezekiel hadn't given that clever answer. I think it was clever. God then gives him this, what we would call nowadays, a two-point plan. And as you look around Norwich, you look around Barkhamstead or anywhere else you like, the two-point plan applies today as it ever did then. Uh, one of the writers that I'm very keen on, if I just mention it, is George Matheson. Some of you may have read um, some of George Matheson's. He was a Scot. I didn't come here to make a nationalist point. But he was, and he was blind, and he wrote some lovely books. One of the books that he wrote, you can still get, I think, on Amazon, is A Portrait of Christ in St. John. It's absolutely wonderful, I think. 
I mean, my encouragement to you is to have some book on the go, and it needs to be a book by somebody. Um, but, you know, I think not just modern stuff, but some of these old writers. F.B. Mayer is a fantastic author. George Matheson a fantastic author. One of the points that he makes in St. John's Gospel is that John is always trying to get our minds expanded. That's to say, St. John is always trying to get us off the material, as it were, to the spiritual. So you, you can see it illustrated with Nicodemus. He's cracked straight in with the Spirit of God. It has to be the Spirit of God. With a woman at the well, he's, you know, she thinks it's water coming from the well, and Jesus says, mm, not water from the well, actually, it's living water from heaven, the Spirit. And John 7, he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The verse I come back to again and again and again, particularly if you're preaching somewhere you've never preached before, and the enemy will always make your eye alight on one person who's going, <laughs> like that, and you think, oh no, oh dear. And then you think, John seven thirty seven. whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers, living water. That's the promise. There's no other link. Lord, I believe in you. And then you'll see a pair of eyes that will suddenly go like that. And if you're a fisherman like I am, you'll think, well, if you were American, you'd think, hot dog. But in English, you'd think, oh, wonderful. He's... <laughs> George Matheson's point is that the power of Scripture is... A, let, sorry, I, I'm two, three chains of thought. From the material... Uh, to the spiritual. So, of course, for example, John chapter 6, of course Jesus fed 5,000 people, men, not to mention women and children. Of course, but that's not the point. The point is that Jesus feeds everybody all the time, everywhere, by the Spirit. So he's trying to get out our minds to not get caught up on just the, just the physical, which is true, onto the... He's always trying to get our minds to, from the particular to the general. So that what Jesus did then, he does now. The third change that he's trying to affect, he's trying to get our minds from the future to the present. Now, St. John is the only evangelist, as you know, who says, guess, Jesus saying, now is the judgment. Not just then. The judgment can take place now, and we're acquitted now. So we live in heaven now. That's what Mike was talking about. Not yet it will be fulfilled, and it's more, and it's better, and it's complete. But it, we, we don't have to wait to go in heaven. We're in heaven now because heaven is where Jesus is. So he's trying to get us here uh, into, the, into the present so that we enjoy the present. This is all George Matheson stuff. And the other thing he says is that the power of Scripture... It's not just that Jesus did or God did this, that, and the other 2,000 years ago with these people, the people of God. The power of Scripture is that it's what God always does when he finds faith. Because he is consistent. And all he looks for in you and in me is faith. And the moment we say, Lord, you, you said that. I believe that. That settles it. Then we're away on a fast horse. So, God sets out this two-point plan, and my point is that the two-point plan applies today 
as it did in the time of Ezekiel. And of course, it came as a huge blessing to the people of God who were dispirited, as I say, and just before God brought them back into, into the land. And the chapter's about unity as well. But point one, as God says to them, it says to Ezekiel, he says, I wanted you to do two things. Number one, speak to them. Speak to the dry bones. Now, I don't know how you speak to dry bones. Some of my clergy brethren have to speak to dry bones every Sunday, but I don't suppose you do, but it's possible. I don't know how you do that, but Jesus spoke to fevers, and Ezekiel spoke to mountains, and, you know, you just, you just speak to them. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, very quickly, what might the word of the Lord be today? I want to break it down for you, because I think... As we approach evangelization, which is surely, and humbly speaking, surely it's the, well, John Wesley used to say it's the only thing the church has to do, save souls. We don't save souls, God saves souls, but it's the priority, the, 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 the most important thing. He, he wrote in his journal, a lot of the time, as you know, I rode to Bristol and offered them Christ. Some accepted, some didn't. But a lot of them did, of course. So we've got to save souls. Jesus said, go and make disciples. <laughs> Don't just bring them to my way of thinking. Bring them to Jesus' way of thinking. Disciples of Jesus. So here's the word of the Lord. I want to break it down into five little, little sub-paragraphs before we look at the second major point. And then we're going to do some ministry. I, I like to think... But what has happened in my lifetime is that all our different families, all our different denominations, it was Bishop Leslie Newbegin, he went to India. In fact, his whole of his ministry was in India, as you know. He was a lovely man. I remember him saying, it isn't until you get to India where 5% of the, of the population is Christian that you see the futility. I can see him now shaking with indignation. The futility of all these different denominations. Because they're subdivided, and only 5% of them are Christian anyway. So he founded the Church of South India, uh, as, as you know. And um, I come, as you may have gathered by now, I come from Scotland. I understand the clan system. We don't all have to be part of the same clan or the same, uh, any more than we can be the same family. But we need to understand that we're in this together. Which is why I was so thrilled to be invited to Krakow last weekend as an Anglican to a Catholic conference. They've got the point that we've got to, to do this together. And that involves, I don't think it involves any stretching of any doctrinal sensitivities. The difference in my lifetime has been that whereas when I think when we started on the whole, certainly we in the Church of Scotland at that time, we chose to begin where we were least, <coughs> where we were least likely to agree. So we got stuck. Now we begin where we're most likely to agree and we put off anything else until we get to heaven and we see who's right. And it could be them or it could be us. But here are the points I think that we can all totally agree about. Number one, that the world is lost without Jesus. Can we agree about that? It isn't, you see, that when you come to Christ, you're superhuman. It is that until you come to Christ, you're less than fully human. Because you were created for a relationship with Jesus. And um, that's why it's so important. And 
I'm not being critical at all, but I observe that in my lifetime too, we've managed to switch the emphasis. You see, our forefathers talked about being saved, from which it's obvious that we were lost before. Nowadays, we talk about giving our lives to Christ, which is wonderful. I don't want to stop you giving your life to Christ. But I want you to observe that what you've done subconsciously is to move God out of the center and put yourself into the center because you have given your life to Christ. Well, that's wonderful and much the best thing for you to do. But let's observe as well that you can only do that if God had moved you into that position because we love because he first loved us. So there was virtue in describing ourselves as lost before we were saved. Uh, in Leslie Newbegin's book, I think it's The Open Secret, he describes going into a post office in India. Remember that bit? There was a parcel on the floor, and the notice at the top said, this parcel must be kept at all times upside down. The top is labeled the bottom, and the bottom the top, in order to avoid confusion. Well, I think there's confusion about whether we're lost or not, because most people out there don't think they are. And I don't want to start there. I wouldn't start by saying, you're lost, you know. But it starts in my thinking. I look around, and I see these people who are on the path to destruction. And something says, what can we do? So we're lost. <clears throat> Number two, though, we want a fresh confidence in the church, in the gospel. It really does make a difference. And we need to agree about that. It isn't just a sort of choice that somebody makes. It's a radical, a radical difference. Um, we were doing an Alpha conference some years ago in Edinburgh, actually. And um, at the end of the ministry, this man came up to me. He said, I'm a Church of Scotland minister. And 20 years ago, I did something that I know upset God. And I've repented and repented and repented. But I've never felt that God had forgiven me. He said, I've taken the right weddings and services and funerals and prayed the right prayers, which they do in the Church of Scotland, as you know, some length. But I've never felt forgiven. Do you think I could be? And I did what you would have done. I just put my hand on his head and I asked God to bring the knowledge of forgiveness from his head to his heart. Because I've always noticed that many young people date their conversion from the Holy Spirit weekend on Alpha. They may have given their lives to Christ two or three weeks before, but they didn't feel forgiveness until they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. And the Holy Spirit who tells us, you are forgiven. You are a child of God. And he went home. The following morning, he came back and he said very sweetly, he was totally different. It was nothing to do with me. It was entirely what God had done in him. And I broke my own rules because I wouldn't normally do that. And we were doing a conference in London, which as some of you will know is 400 miles away from Edinburgh. And I told that story. And at the end of the ministry, this man came up to me and he said, do you recognize me? I said, oh, I said, I'm so sorry. But just before we go any further, I said, did I get it right? He said, absolutely. And if you hadn't told them, I'd have wanted to. The gospel makes a difference. We start again. Um, I remember Jean Darnell telling us when she first came to London, they had a flat in, in um, Clapham. She went round to the Anglican church in Clapham. This is years ago. 
and they had 1662, Book of Common Prayer. And some of you may know that the confession in that is a very, very remarkable prayer. It goes on for quite a long time, you know, about us being unworthy and miserable sinners and wretched and hopeless and, you know, we're so sorry. And, I'm sorry. and she said to Elmer at lunch, she said, my, there was such a spirit of repentance in the church today. She went back to the evening service and they prayed the same prayer of, of confession. And uh, she said, I said to myself, what have they been doing all afternoon? Or is it that they don't know that we can start again? That you can start again, and you have. And he's the God of the 400th new fresh start, 522nd fresh start, 733rd fresh start. Thank God! Or we'd all be in deep trouble. It really makes a difference. And these people know that, and you can see it. Number three, we need to get a, a recovery of the understanding, conviction about the uniqueness of Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. We haven't got to be rude about anybody else. There's no other founder of our religion that claims what Jesus claimed. None of them claim to be alive today, except Jesus. St. John, as you know, in his gospel, goes further, of course, he says Jesus is the Word of God. That's why the link between Jesus and his Father is so, is so close and in, in, indestructible. He is the Word of God. In these last days, the writer of the Hebrews says, God has finally spoken, not just through the prophets, which he's been speaking through for a long time, but through his Son. He's only got one. So Jesus is unique. Totally unique. And we have to find modest and nice ways of explaining that to people, but we mustn't give an inch on that at all. There's no one like Jesus. Some years ago, I watched this program on telly. You know, it used to be possible at Easter to find some bishop who didn't really believe in the resurrection. And the television, of course, would wheel him on at Easter. And, the, it, and mercifully, they're very difficult to get now. A bishop who doesn't believe is wonderful. And the table had five wise, so-called wise men around it on telly. Wise men seem to come from the West nowadays, from Ealing and places like that, not, no longer from the East. But one of them, one of them said at some point, I just happened to switch it on, we'd been out, and I came in and I switched it on, just in time to see this man saying, you know, I find the whole idea of resurrection highly improbable. And all the others nodded and tried to look wise. But I remember thinking as I watched it, that's the whole point. <laughs> Not only is it highly improbable, it's totally impossible. <laughs> Unless God does it. But you may have noticed the early church never sets out to prove the resurrection. They start from the resurrection. This Jesus, who you crucified, is alive. Now, what are the implications of that? And we need to start from there, too. They need not, you know, Francis used to say we must evangelize using words if necessary, remember? They need to see the effect of the risen Jesus in the church community, in the things that the church community does, the, the service that it gives in the community, all the things that you're doing. So that they say, well, wait a minute, what's happening here? Well, Jesus is alive. The sole survivor people, you know, solely in the city, 
um, people we did our solar city thanks to Mike um, in North London and they were all trained if somebody says to you know why are you clearing our garden beds and clearing out the weeds why are you painting these rains well we love Jesus and Jesus loves you so we're doing it for him so he gets the glory not them but that's what they need to see I had a great friend who was a Catholic priest in Fulham years ago. He told me he went down to answer the doorbell at 7 o'clock in the morning. And there was a distraught woman outside. And she said, he said, I said to her, yes, my dear. She said, I want to become a lapsed Catholic. (laughs) So he said, that's exactly what happened. So he being a Catholic priest, he said, well, you may just have to explain to me what you mean. Well, she said, I don't know what I mean. But my friend Mary, she does everything for everybody. If you're ill, she'll do your shopping for you. She'll look after your children. She'll take things in for you. She'll, if you die, she'll wash your body before the undertaker comes to collect you. And every time I ask her what she is, she says she's a lapsed Catholic. Well, my point is that they out there know what the Church of Jesus Christ would do if the church was the church of Jesus Christ. You don't have to prove that Jesus is alive. They can see it. All you have to do is put into words, we're doing this because we love Jesus. Who loves you? Etc. So the uniqueness of Jesus, we need to recover again. And, and again, just to quote Bishop Leslie, do you remember, you know that lovely hymn, Come Down, O Love Divine. Uh, verse 2 is, um, Let godly charity my outward vesture be, and lowliness become mine inner clothing. That's the second line of it. And I can remember him saying, so you see, humility is underwear. We don't have to be humble out there about Jesus. We're right on for Jesus. We're proud of Jesus. And we're right to be proud about Jesus because he's unique. Number four, a new urgency about evangelism or evangelization. A new urgency about it. It's not an option. That's why I, I, that's why I love this story. Because you see, as he started to speak, I'm not going to sing the old spiritual song to you. You'll be relieved to know. But you'll probably remember it, some of you. The bones began to come together. Now, it doesn't say that some of the bones were New Frontiers and some of them were Anglican and some of them were Catholic or Methodist or Church of Scotland. They were just bones. That's why I love Alpha. You may have gathered that. Because people come in they don't want to be corralled into a denomination or a non-denomination until they know whether they want to believe in God. They come in as nothing. And they're very suspicious of being asked what they are. They're like the bones. And as the bones come together, it can't have been comfortable for the bones. It must have been quite a difficult experience for them, actually. Justly for position. But it was what God was doing in bringing them together. And you remember, if you look at the end of that paragraph of that, as they began to come together, they stood up on their feet, a vast army of the people that God was creating and bringing into his community to bring about, under Jesus, the salvation of the world, the the drawing together and the, the bringing together of the world. So the fourth thing is, it will be a new urgency about that. What can we do? And we just need to ask God, what can we do? Annette and I are asking God at the moment, what can we do? Because it looks pretty bleak where we are. But I didn't come here to weary you with that. But actually, there are needs coming out of our ears. 
as you were talking about. So the question is, how can we, how can we help? What can, Lord, what can we do? Because we know that that's what the Lord wants us to do, is speak to them along the lines of the Word of God. And the fourth, fifth, fifth thing would be, that we can all agree about, is that we need a personal experience of the Holy Spirit. Don't we? Otherwise, none of this will work. Now, granted all that, that's what we're doing. We're speaking to dry bones. We're encouraging them. We invite them to parties and to Christmas and, you know. But there were two points to this plan, you may remember. The first was speak to them. The second was speak to the Spirit. Prayer. Intercession. Come, Holy Spirit, the oldest prayer in Christendom. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to these dry bones. And as they spoke, as Ezekiel spoke to the dry bones, and the Spirit filled the dry bones, then, we're told, they began to take off. And that's your experience and my experience. So that's what we need, a fresh anointing. Because we've tried everything else, most of us, and that's why, again, forgive me for mentioning, I think for the last time, Alpha isn't a course, actually, really. It's an outworking of the community of God. And people join the community. See, when I started, we managed to create the impression to people outside the church that we would love them when they made the same noises as we do. But until then, you must understand that you're different from us. What Alpha does, and other things I'm sure, but I don't know about them necessarily, is to invite them into the community, make them welcome in the community, whatever noises they make, because we love them, because Jesus loves them. It doesn't mean we agree with them on everything or anything, but it means that we love them. And they catch that, and they begin to say, well, how can I join this community? And then you can talk to them. Well, you can be born from above and filled with the Holy Spirit and be baptized or whatever, whatever the entrance rules are for the community. And you bring them in. Um, Nikki told me some time ago, quite about a year ago, they had a very, a very arrogant television director, young man, about 29 years old. And on the first night when Nikki went around, he said to him, why you, you know, why you all come to Alpha? And this man said, well, I'm, I've come to Alpha because my wife will not give me a divorce unless I do Alpha. Which wasn't very encouraging. At the Holy Spirit weekend, he lasted till lunchtime. He found his wife and he said, we're going home. Pack your suitcase, get in the car, we're off. I'm not staying here anymore. He said there was frightful things about the church, about God, about everybody else. And on Sunday night, back in the church, she came but she was in floods of tears, and she said, he says, he's never coming back. Hates every minute of it, and accuses us all there. But the following Wednesday, there he was. And um, Nicky went around and said, how do you all get on an alpha, you see, because he didn't let on that he knew. And um, this chap said, well, I hated every minute of it. Actually, he said, we left at lunchtime, and I said I was never coming back. So <laughs> Nicky, in his sweet way, said, well, if you, if you, if you don't mind me asking, um, why are you here? And Nicky said he looked sheepish for the first time ever. Very arrogant, 29. And his reply was, well, I just missed you lot. Three weeks later, he gave his life to the Lord. In his testimony, what he said was, this was the only group I have in my life where I can be myself and feel that I'm accepted for what I am. 
every other group, they want my job, they want my ideas, they want some money, they want something out of me. This was the only group that I've got, and I, I couldn't do without it. He loved the community, and he joined the community. So that's the spirit, and the community of the spirit. So we have to set up intercession. And as I've already mentioned, I think, in the last session, I would make sure that you took that seriously, because it's absolutely key. I remember going to visit an elderly lady. She used to do everything in the church, polish the brass, did the flowers, hoovered the carpet, and she couldn't get out of her flat. And when I went in to see her, the first thing she said to me was, I'm afraid I'm no use to the church now. And I said to her, no use? I said, you're absolutely vital. Because from her armchair, in the space of a morning, she can be in every continent in the world, praying for Robert Glover in China, praying for you in wherever you are, praying for us in London, praying for prayer, prayer, prayer. And just by affirming her, identifying her, giving her a job and praying for her, she took off. But because she recognized that that was a ministry that the church, in inverted commas, had asked her uh, to do. And as a result of that, isn't that exciting? The bones stood on their feet, a mighty army ready to do the work that God had called him them to do. And the next part of the chapter is all about unity. As you'll see, Judah and Israel, God says, come on, you've got to get back together again. And I think it's, if it's the last thing I sort of say to you, I feel so excited. I feel, Annette and I feel very privileged to be part of you. Thank you very much for your warm reception. We weren't entitled to assume that. I think it's very sweet of you to have us. I love your hunger for evangelism. I love your not in any particular order, your love for Jesus. I love your willingness to have a, not an obvious member of New Frontiers, although I've been friendly to New Frontiers and they've been to us for many, many, many years. I love your recognition that we're in this together and that together we're going to win the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. And transform society as well.